Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Bill Whitaker is a featured correspondent on CBS's 60 Minutes, which since its founding in 1968 is widely considered the most successful and venerated news magazine show in the history of broadcast journalism. In this episode, Bill speaks about his long journey to get there, beginning with being raised and educated in the town of, and I'm not making this up, Media, Pennsylvania. With the help of various educators, Bill's curiosity for history and storytelling led to a fascinating journalistic career, taking him through newsrooms in San Francisco, Charlotte, Atlanta, Los Angeles, Tokyo, and Beijing. But Bill's keenest insights are saved for his current post, in New York, on 60 Minutes. What was it like to blow the lid off the opioid epidemic? Through a four-episode investigation led by 60 Minutes producer and Harvard-Westlake alumnus, Sam Hornblower. How did it feel to be at the U.S. Capitol, just days after a bloody siege? And how does 60 Minutes manage to inculcate and sustain an unparalleled culture of journalistic excellence? Bill Whitaker on his long career in journalism and telling the truth. This is The Supporting Cast. Bill Whitaker, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thank you very much, Eli. Good to talk to you. Good to see you and talk to you as well. So my first question... You obviously you've been reporting on this and you're a human being. Uh, you're aware that for the last year, life has changed for all of us due to the pandemic. So first, before learning about how that's impacted you professionally and you being so busy as a correspondent on 60 Minutes, how are you doing personally? You guys live in New York now, right? You've you've relocated from uh, Los Angeles. Yes, we relocated. We've been here now for, I can't believe it, but six years. Um, how are we doing personally? We're, we're doing fine. We have survived the pandemic. And as a matter of fact, both Terry and I got our second jabs about uh, two and a half weeks ago. So we see light at the end of this really long and gloomy tunnel. New York went through a horrible, horrible spring. A year ago in New York, it was just kicking off. And it, it was, I lived down the street from Mount Sinai, and you would hear sirens all the time. Mm. And there were refrigerator trucks parked outside as uh, makeshift morgues. And every night at seven o'clock, all of New York, it seemed, certainly this whole neighborhood in Harlem, would um, come out and blow whistles and bang on pots and pans and, and clap and cheer for the frontline workers. It was very, very moving, very moving. Hmm. We have now come out, it seems, we're coming out on the other side. You can sort of feel this pent up energy. People want to get out and people are getting the vaccine. Everybody here wears a mask. Everyone takes it seriously. As I said, we can sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel. So you, as someone I'm curious, who's just gotten their second vaccine, I guess first, personally, how does that change how you 
behave or interact in the world, or is it more internal? And then I guess as a journalist, what about the challenge of folks who sort of don't believe that this vaccine is real or believe that there's a danger in getting this vaccine or it might, how do you think about how to get that message across being someone who's a broadcaster for Hmm. a living? How has it affected us personally? Not, not much. Everybody here, as I said, wears a mask. So we're still wearing masks. As I say, I'm just at that point where I think the second vaccine has kicked in. So I, I think I can wander out into the world safely, right. but, but I'm not. I mean, I'm still going to wear a mask. I'm still going to keep social distancing. It's just, you know, it's just what's required. Sure. And I don't want to send off a bad message, have somebody say, that's that guy from television. He's not wearing a mask. So yeah, right. I'm still, still wearing masks. But about the people who don't, I, I have been venturing out since everything closed down. I've been working from home, turned a bedroom into an office. This is where we are right now, back in March, and have been working out of this office um, since then. We started venturing out just a little bit in August. My first trip was to Wyoming. And, you know, after having gone through what we went through in New York, I was really surprised to see that most people there were not wearing masks. As a matter of fact, we we sort of looked like aliens walking around with masks on, and most people were not. You know, it's it's a completely different environment. People aren't piled up on each other like we are here. They're not riding in subways. It's open air. It's uh, wide open spaces. So I I get the difference, but you you just sort of do want to take people and say, you know, this is really serious. You you know that, right? This is is not something to play around with. And I'm not sure that message, even after a year, has sunk in with everybody. Yeah. But you've been very busy. You said you've been working at home. But I'm, I mean, your last few weeks, each week, you've had a big story to report on on 60 Minutes. I'm just looking. You, you, NASA's race to put a woman on the moon, increasing, of course, COVID vaccinations. Apropos to our conversation, you did a story on that. The solar winds, Russian hack the week before that. You've been very, very busy. I'm curious, before getting into some of the substance of any of those stories, how does the mechanics of 60 Minutes work with all of these stories going on simultaneously? Are there sets of producers working on each of these stories individually and then you're brought on early or midway through the process? Sort of how does it work with some of these stories can be multiple weeks or months or years maybe in the making, but some of them you have to jump on kind of right away. Yes, it's, it's all of the above. I would say ordinarily a 60 Minutes piece takes two, three months or more Hmm. To totally put together, you know, from conception to delivering the final product, there is a production team, a producer and associate producer. They come to me either with a story idea or I go to them with a story idea. The, the NASA one was my story idea. I took it to a producer. The Solar Winds was the producer's idea. He comes to me. So it's cross-pollination. Hmm. We decide we want to do it. We go to the front office and make our pitch, more than likely they will say, go do it. And at 60 Minutes, you've got this incredible luxury of, you know, for broadcast journalism that when they say, go do it, you get all the resources to do it. You get the photographers and the editors and the travel and the, you know just everything that is required to put the story together. As I said, in the 
pre-pandemic days, it would be three, two months to put a piece together. With the news coming so rapidly now, the siege on the White House and the rollout of the the vaccine, it's more and more, I've been throwing pieces, I shouldn't say throwing pieces, we've been doing pieces in in a week. Or in, in, in the case of the siege on the White House, it was even less. The Harvard Westlake alums in college will get this reference. It's sort of like the end of the term and you have a term paper that's due and it's due on Sunday and it's Wednesday. You just stay up (laughs) and you work around the clock and you eat at your desk and you grab a nap when you can. It's, It's just nonstop churning it out and you deliver it on Sunday and then you fall into bed and sleep for a day. It's uh, very fast-paced. I was saying there's a production team, so a producer and a, an associate producer are the, the drivers of their story. So they do the basic research. They find the characters, the people who are going to be the best at telling this story. Yeah, I get a great big notebook, a Bible, with all the research. If there are court documents involved, I'll get the court documents. I get the bios of the people we're going to talk to. And it's a great big folder. It's like being in college and I've got to become uh, an instant expert. We set up the interviews. I do the interviews. We then transcribe the interviews. And that comes back as another big book of all of the the transcriptions of all the interviews. And then we start going through the um, interviews. What was the best thing this person said? What's the best thing that's going to push the story forward? How are we going to tell it best through these people's words? And then I start to writing. Associate producer will give um, his notes or an outline. I think we should go this way. And then we put our heads together and we come up with how we're going to do the story. Take it to an editor. The editor puts it together. And then we present that to the front office. And that's when the hard part starts. (laughs) The front office the front office says, oh, I don't get it, or I don't like that person, or this person is better than that one. Why don't you do more of it? And so you go back and have to do it again. And you sometimes do it two times at least, sometimes three, before you get a thumbs up and it ends up on the air. So you can imagine when it's a, a, a crash, like I was explaining, you start on Wednesday and it goes on the air on Sunday. To do those two or three versions of it is very compressed, very fast. And when it's all over, you just sort of Phew. <laughs> yeah. Reminds me of Saturday Night Live or something, right? When you're claiming <laughs> to get something. Well, you know, and one of your producers I know is Sam Hornblower, who exactly. is Harvard Westlake class of 97. So it's fun, yes. always fun to see his name and your name on the same yes. story. Sam is brilliant. I, I do want to talk about because you were there for the story on the siege on the Capitol um, not long after that took place. But in going through this process, 60 Minutes is such a, a vanguard and the most respected. TV journalism show for going on decades now. Having had such a long career in journalism, you've worked in so many different places. You've worked in the Los Angeles Bureau, CBS News for a very long time. What is it about the culture there that creates excellence in the way you describe? Is it the collaboration with those producers? Is it how they recruit the talent that they recruit? Is it the management? Is it those folks at the end kind of saying, mm, this isn't quite good enough. This is this is maybe good for another news program, but this is 60 Minutes. This actually has mm. to be a level higher. Kind of how do you, now that you've been there six, seven years, how do you explain the, the culture of excellence in journalism that 60 Minutes cultivates? Hmm. 
Well, it, it, it took me a really long time to get here. So it's not, it's not easy to get here. Right, and right. Once you get here, you are in an environment where everybody has worked their hardest to make it here. So this is sort of like you've been climbing the mountain and you finally get to the top of the mountain. This is one of those when you get to the top of the mountain, that's not the end of it. It's just the beginning. So you actually, I'm working harder now than I have ever worked before in my life, but I love it more. It is that bouncing off of each other. It's a, a bunch of really smart, hardworking people with good ideas and you feed off of each other and you work hard together and it is very collaborative. It's television. So I couldn't make it on the air if we didn't have excellent photographers and the sound men who pick up the, the sound of the, when I was in Montana, it was to do a piece about grizzly bears and you know the, the sound man has to get the, the roar of the grizzly bear in, in, in the woods. If he doesn't, you've missed the story. So everybody is at the top of their game all the time. And it's a very collaborative effort and everybody puts their best into it. Yeah. And, and I think everybody loves it. So that shows as well. So going to the, the siege of the Capitol, there's probably many stories I could ask you about, but what was it like being there just a few days after that took place? What do you recall most? What stood out most about that experience that day? The, the thing that hit me the hardest was to see a big fence with concertina wire going up around the Capitol, mm. the people's house, and military on corners with <laughs> armored personnel carriers and things and guarding every corner around our Capitol. I remember the first time I was uh, stationed in Asia and the first time I went to China and went through Hong Kong, and there were armed guards at the airport, you know, military men with heavy weapons at the airport. Yeah. I remember thinking, geez, thank God we don't have to live like that in the United States. And yeah. here we are having to live like that in the United States. It's, it's, it's shocking and kind of frightening and infuriating. Yeah. I think that was the worst part about it. And and just that it was the piece we did was just about all of the policing failures. Like how did that happen? How is it possible that you did not know that this was coming your way? Yeah. And that's still something we're trying to figure out. I'm curious when you came to 60 minutes, you know, the, we're called the supporting cast and as we talked about we're going to talk about some I know some teachers that were highly influential to you as a young person, but were there folks when you arrived, obviously you had a long career in journalism, so you, you already knew what you were doing by the time you got to 60 Minutes, but were there folks there, other correspondents, Leslie Stahl, Steve Croft, Scott Pelley, all these names that we know and we've watched for so many years, are there any of those folks or perhaps producers or, or some of the execs who were instrumental in kind of showing you the way or showing you the ropes or putting their arm around you and making you feel welcome, like you belonged? On 60 <laughs> everybody was very welcoming seriously everybody was very there you know I, I went out to lunch with leslie stahl i went out to lunch with steve croft everybody's very welcoming but you must realize it's a very competitive place mm. so everyone is 
aiming to get their story on every Sunday. So it's it's um, welcoming to a point. That's know? interesting. Huh? Nice to have you on the knife floor, kid. Now go for it. But I had a, a lot of, uh, there was a young man who was uh, sort of assigned to me when I first got there. They said, yeah, you're, Ali's been here for a couple of years. Why don't you bring Ali along and have him be your assistant and see if it works out. And if it doesn't, we'll, we'll get you a permanent assistant. But, you know, work with Ali in the beginning. Ali was um, the best person who ever could have crossed my path when I got there. He has his eyes and ears and antenna up all the time. And he had been there for two years before and he knew the ropes and he was able to say, uh, you don't want to go over there. I think you want to work over here. I think, you know, if someone gave me some advice, he'd say, consider the source, you know, <laughs> you know just sort wow. of figure out what's going on. So he sort of held my hand and walked me through the ropes. He was my assistant and he was at that point 23 years old. He's now still working with me. He's now an associate producer. He was instrumental and the producers as well. The producers, they, they don't want to put a bad piece on the air. They also don't want to work with a correspondent who's not going to get on the air. So you sort of have to prove yourself a little bit in the beginning to say, oh, he, he kind of knows what he's doing. And then the producers will come and want to work with you. So, and then, you know, every, as I said, no one was antagonistic at all, and there were no roadblocks thrown in my way by anybody, and I got a lot of help by the editors and, and photographers and, and producers, so it's, it was a strong, steep learning curve, but I had a lot of help. Well, was there a story then in terms of proving yourself or proving to producers that you could get yourself on the air? Because now you're on the air every week. I mean, you have some, the, the biggest stories, many of the biggest stories seem to to come your way. Was there a story where you felt like you proved yourself? Like there was a key story that established you at 60 Minutes? And I guess beyond that, was there a story, maybe even after that, that has been most meaningful to you? Or now that you're at 60 Minutes, you sort of reached the top of the mountain, as you put it, that you said, wow, this is why I got into journalism was kind of this type of a story. Hmm. I think right off the bat, the second year, we did a story about banks uh, hiding people's assets to help them avoid paying tax. And it was worldwide. And uh, there was the um, a consortium of uh, foreign journalists who all came together and shared these documents. But 60 Minutes was the broadcast arm. And the others were newspapers in England and um, the Netherlands, France, throughout the, throughout most of Europe. But we were the ones who had the broadcast part of the story and um, made a big splash. You know, banks were called before Congress and um, had to reveal whose secrets they were holding. And people had to pay back taxes and even go to jail. There was a, a, another one, I think that same year, my second year, about a guy who had been on death row for 30 years and was found to have not committed the crime. And uh, he was in the worst prison in the country, uh, Angola in um, uh, Louisiana. 30 years, no air conditioning, and it got up to 110 degrees in the summer and no heat, and it got cold in the winter. 30 years in solitary confinement. And he finally gets out when they find that he did not commit the crime. And the state of Louisiana gave him 
a $25 gift card and a pat on the back. Oof. And he'd been in so long, he didn't even know what a gift card was. And he went and had um, a dinner, fried chicken and rice and sweet tea. And he had $5 left over on the card. And that was it after 30 years. So we went to confront the prosecutor, the one who put him in, and then the one who got him out and gave him the $25 card and um, confronted him. And I think um, it was the first time that I ever had a sort of a confrontation with somebody on camera. That sort of cements your, your footing at 60 minutes when you, when you confront the bad guys. Like Mike Wallace, right? <laughs> Mike Wallace used to do that, right? With terrorists. Yeah, he, he would do it every week, yeah. <laughs> well, the first one, I bet was meaningful too because there were real consequences. I think probably one of, I would imagine one of the challenges in journalism is particularly as news is so segmented and fragmented nowadays is that you're kind of shouting into an echo chamber or you're preaching to the converted. You know, we're talking about the the vaccine. If you're talking about the power of the vaccine to people who are already already understand and you're not really getting through or creating consequences, I bet that first story was great because there were actual I mean, people were being called before Congress. There was mm. actual consequences to some of that work. Is that ever frustrating? Sometimes you're reporting on a story and then, you know, not enough people's minds are being changed by, by what you're trying to report. Oh, I, 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 my, my philosophy is you just keep telling the truth. And at a certain point, someone will look up and say, Oh, these people have been saying this all along. I've been led astray over here, but I, I, I always believe the truth will out. It will prevail. So mm-hmm. just keep hammering away at the truth and hope and pray that people pay attention. You were talking about Sam Hornblower. I did a series of stories with Sam that were very influential. It was about the opioid epidemic and how it was managed by the drug makers and the drug distributors. And they knew early on, within two years of making these new uh, high-dose opioids, they knew within two years that they were addictive and that people were getting hooked. That They were making so much money that they kept pumping them into communities. And they would find communities that were most vulnerable, many poor communities in, 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 in Florida and Georgia, Kentucky and Idaho, some of the places got millions of doses of pills for towns with maybe 9,000 people. And they knew that people were coming from all around to go to these particular drugstores where they were able to get these opioids without very many questions being asked. And they were addicting, as it turns out, tens of thousands of Americans. And they did it knowingly. So Sam was the one who found this story. And Sam is a journalist. You, he's like a dog with a bone. You uh, give it to him and he will not stop until he's gotten down to the marrow. And uh, we did a series of, I think, four stories on opioids. The result of one was that the congressman who had been tapped by President Trump to be his new drug czar right. was... Um, one of the guys who had passed a law that sort of gave the drug manufacturers and distributors a little slap on the hand. Once we put this story out, he had to withdraw his name. He could no longer right. go forward. So 
it's you know it, it's 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 had an impact. Wow. Sam Hornblower gets massive cred for that. We'll have to get you guys together for an event, maybe a virtual event sometime. You guys talk <laughs> about that story. That would be incredible. So now I want to talk about about your story, Bill. You were born in Philadelphia, is that right? Yes, I was actually born in Philadelphia, but at the time we lived in a small city outside of Philadelphia. And when I was four, we moved to an even smaller, small town, Media, Pennsylvania. Is that right? M-E-D-I-A. I I went to Media Junior High. Yeah. (laughs) And what kind of schooling did you have? Did you go to public school in Media? Went to public school in Media. And were there uh, teachers throughout your early years that were inspiring to you even back then? I had a fifth grade teacher who is perhaps the most memorable teacher I have uh, ever had. Her name was Mrs. Cadman. And Mrs. Cadman's room was like, oh, something you'd think you'd see at Hogwarts. It was full of just things, you know? There there were models of the galaxy and microscopes and Petri dishes full of things and butterflies on needles and just everything all over her room and everything was to be touched. There was nothing that was like, don't touch that. No, go in, touch it, smell it, see whatever. She one time brought us in edible insects, chocolate covered ants and honey covered bees and, you know, handed out the foods and she was like, try it, try Mm -hmm. it, be adventurous, go out. (laughs) And she inspired us all to sort of just be these curious little creatures who just wanted to see and taste and smell and explore the world. And I carried that with me for the rest of my life. Absolutely. As a journalist. Yes. She set the stage. (laughs) In media. In media. (laughs) In media. And so then in junior high and high school, you also spent there in media? Yep. I went to a high school called Pencrest. My hometown was so small. I would have graduated with a class of 60 that the state said we were so small that we needed to combine with the county. So I went to a countywide high school, Pencrest, and I graduated from Pencrest. And were there teachers there that were inspiring? Oh, yeah. I had a, a, an English teacher who got me uh, involved with the school newspaper. So I was a reporter for the Aardvark, our hmm. uh, <laughs> our school newspaper. Let me see. And then I had two very influential teachers in college. I majored in history. We had this professor called, uh, his name was Robert Huff, and his nickname was Tough Huff. Hmm. And he would have you read three, four, five books and write a paper on them that was only one sheet. If you went one sentence over that one sheet, you draw a red line at the bottom, wouldn't read it. And at the bottom also had to be the footnotes. So you had one page to write a book that synthesized, I mean, write a paper that synthesized five books. And it was impossible. But one time I got an A. No one got an A from Tough Huff. No one. Wow. So I sort of realized, oh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm smarter than I think I am. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> That also prepared me for journalism when you have to take lots of information and compress it down into a coherent, smaller form. That helped me quite a bit. Uh, I had another history professor who um, uh, asked me what I was planning to do after college, and I, I had no plans. He applied to graduate school for me. 
seriously. He mm. gave me a piece of paper and said, here, you are going to fill this out and you are going to sign this. And I've already gotten in touch with the people at Boston University. If you do this, they are aware of your grades and what I think of you and your recommendation, fill this out. And I filled it out. And uh, thanks to him, I went on to graduate school in um, African-American studies uh, with a, an emphasis on history hmm. and um, changed my life. Truly just changed my life going to graduate school. And was it there that you decided to go into journalism from there? Or what, what sort of changed from studying African-American history to then kind of moving to journalism? We're talking ancient history. So I was finishing up first year of graduate school for the bicentennial. So 1976, mm -hmm. ancient history. You know, when you go into the little towns, you go into their historical site and there's a video, you push a button and it tells you all about Concord and Lexington and whatever. Sure. We put those together. So we would go and find somebody in Concord or Lexington who had some connection to a, a figure from history and sort of tell the story of Lexington through their eyes. And I was the researcher writer. So I had to go find the people, do the initial interviews and then interview them on camera. And I, I sort of said, I work for a small film company tied with Boston University. And I said, I, I kind of like this. Geez, this is just like light bulb goes off, broadcast journalism. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I think I like this. So I applied for graduate school again in journalism at UC Berkeley. From there on, you you kind of knew that that was going to be your path when you were at Berkeley? Oh, yeah. 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 My first job was at public television in San Francisco, and I was a um, broadcast associate. Fancy name for the person who took the tapes from the editor and got them down to the guy who put them, who stacked them in the proper order for the show. So that when the director pushes the button, the right piece comes up. And I, here I was with two stints in graduate school and I'm running tape up and down steps. And I loved it because I was in the newsroom. And yeah. I, 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 that's where I was supposed to be. And so then, I mean, from there, you've had many stops in your career. Did you get on air while you were in San Francisco or did it take no, you going to no, Charlotte I, I, or Atlanta ended, or these other places? I ended up being a producer there. Mm. After after four years, I ended up as a producer at KQED, but I always wanted to be a reporter. So I applied for a year and a half. I first started off as a, you know, I'm only going to work on the East Coast or the West Coast. And after I applied to everybody on the East Coast and the West Coast and got turned down, I went, okay, well, I'm only going to work in a big city. I got turned down by every big city. And I'm only, and then it came to like, I'll work anywhere. <laughs> Somebody please give me a job. <laughs> um, so it was like a year and a half and I got hired by WBTV in Charlotte for their trainee program. It was sponsored by CBS and CBS would pay half my salary. WBTV would pay the other half and I'd be trained for six months. And at the end of the six months, they could either hire me or fire me. Luckily I got hired. <laughs> went from there to the network. I jumped from the affiliate to the network, was assigned to Atlanta, from Atlanta to Tokyo and Beijing, and from Beijing to Los Angeles. And that's where our paths crossed. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so you, you get to Los Angeles, and you were the, that was obviously your longest stint. And is that where you and your wife met? Was in Los Angeles, or was it before then? Oh, no, we met in Boston. She was going to BU as well. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So she was with you throughout this, this through long this, journey. Through this long journey. Yeah. yeah. She's every step of the way. San Francisco, Charlotte. We actually moved in North Carolina. So from Charlotte to Raleigh, Raleigh to Tokyo, Tokyo spending time in Beijing, then back to Los Angeles, every step of the way. And she reminds me that every time we move, I get an assignment. So it's like, see ya, honey. (laughs) (laughs) While she's packing up. So this time when we came to New York, she says, you are not going on. You are not. We are going to pack this house up together. (laughs) You're going to go through the pain of this with me. (laughs) Got it. And those are a lot of books. You guys can't see it, but there's a lot of books on those bookshelves behind you. Oh, there's a lot. lot, There's a lot. A lot to pack. What was it like working in Asia, being a correspondent in in Asia? What were the types of stories you were asked to to report on? Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. Again, we're talking ancient history. So I went at the end of the 80s. And at that point, Japan was an economic powerhouse. So the Asia Bureau was in Tokyo, but Beijing was a rising giant at the time. So uh, we split our time between Tokyo and Beijing. And the very first day that I stepped foot in Beijing was the day of Tiananmen Square. So I land in a city that is on fire. I, I literally just walked in. As luckily, somebody was there to stamp my passport because I would have been in big trouble had they not. But everything else was gone. There was no. Everybody had fled. You know, you pick up your baggage. You know, I, I came to find out afterwards that Beijing is very strict. But my first day there, I'm just sort of walking through the airport, like, well, what do I do now? CBS had sent a car to pick me up, and we're driving through the streets, and they're burned out military vehicles on the side of the road. You could see in the distance, the sky was orange and we're driving toward that. Yeah, the the actual massacre had happened hours before I got there, but the city was still in total chaos. They were fighting in the streets. I was sent to Tiananmen Square. I was sent to a building uh, that overlooks Tiananmen Square. It's right across from the Great Hall of the People. The Great Wall with Mao's picture would be to my right. The troops from Beijing were considered to be untrustworthy because they were from the big city. So they were replacing them with troops from the countryside who they thought were, would follow the rules more closely. Mm-hmm. So we were there when they were having this transfer of troops and watching, watching them secure Tiananmen Square and then branch out from there and secure the city. It was, it was quite remarkable. In the, in the first couple of days, you didn't know who was going to win. You sort of felt that the students and the people of Beijing were going to prevail. Yeah. But slowly over the course of the week, you saw the government resume control. And by the end of two weeks, they had sort of taken everything back. And yeah, it was quite remarkable wow. to watch. Quite an introduction. Quite an introduction. Welcome to Beijing. <laughs> wow. And what was it like looking back back at the United States from abroad as well? You had been a journalist within the country reporting on local stories. You had studied history. You'd studied African-American studies. But what was it like looking at America from abroad? I think everybody should travel. I think it's the great, the greatest form of education available to all of us, especially when the pandemic is over. Get your passport and go. 
it helps you to see your country better. It really does. I mean, I, I got a chance to go back to Beijing uh, in 2013. And the last time I had been there was uh, 1993. So in that period of time, there were maybe a dozen tall buildings in all of Beijing when I left the first time. When I went back, to, it was, it was, it's Manhattan. It's Manhattan. High-speed rail and you, know, you, you name it. They, like that, turned the country around. So I, I think this time is that we're very, you know, whenever you go to a sporting event or the Olympics, it's like, we're number one, we're number one. And you find out very quickly, you go to any Asian airport, you ride on any Asian high-speed rail, you'll quickly find out that, you know, we're, we're number one in many, many, many ways agricultural freedom, our ability to think and do and you know, create things like Silicon Valley. But certainly when it comes to infrastructure, we've got a long way. <laughs> we've got some major competitors and people who have surpassed us in, in some ways. We, we, need to, we need to up our game. Yeah. My wife and I went to Tokyo a few years ago. And when the train says it's going to leave at 5.03 p.m., the train actually leaves at 5.03 p.m. Absolutely. <laughs> And if you're sitting there, you're an American, you go like, well, this can't be. Maybe this train's a little early. If you don't get on that one, the next one comes at 5.05 and it's bam, right there. It's like. Exactly. Yeah. And so what about in LA? You spent, again, your longest stint here in LA. You sent your kids to Harvard Westlake, of course. Were there stories or things you learned about Los Angeles or highlights to that time, stories that you worked on during that span that stand out to you? Yeah. We love LA. We loved our time in LA. And every time I go back to LA, I go like, <laughs> we left because <laughs> I left because of a job. 60, minutes, exactly is 60 exactly. minutes is because. Exactly. No. I left because of a wonderful job. But uh, LA is a wonderful place to live. Oh, let me see. I did the story of the opening of Disney Hall and got to walk around while they were building it and to talk to Geary, who was the architect and designer, and got to talk to Esapekka Salonen, who was the conductor at the time, and got to walk backstage while they were figuring out what wood would sound best, and then to to go for opening night to hear it and see it all in place. It was that was magnificent. My real beat when I was there, I, if I had one, would have been the border. All of the talk of the the wall and immigrants and drug smuggling and all of that. I was covering all of that. And I find it really, really interesting that the further away from the border you get, the more adamant people are that they know what the solution is. Just put up that wall. You know, it's just, just stop the immigrants. Just, you know, it's like everybody knows when they don't live there. When you live there, you know, it's quite nuanced. You know, it's, it's, it's quite gray. And, um, oh my gosh, I did too many forest fires. <laughs> yeah. They've continued yeah, since you left. I did so. too many wildfires, but, um, just, you know, when you, when you're a, a reporter in Los Angeles, you get, to me, it was the best assignment in all of CBS news. You get the West. So you get the environment and you get Hollywood and the arts and you, you get to cover it all. You get to cover it all. It was it was a wonderful assignment. And while you were there, did you have this sense of gosh, 
maybe 60 minutes someday at the, you know, watching every Sunday going, gosh, this show is pretty good. I'd love to be there. Was that in your mind for, for any of that time? I think any journalist who tells you that it is not is either lying to themselves or lying to you. Uh, yes, of course. But I must tell you, I'm no spring chicken. So I, I guess I had thought that ship had sailed. Hmm. And I was perfectly happy to finish out my career in Los Angeles. I truly was and thought that that is exactly what I would do. But uh, I got this phone call from the executive producer of 60 Minutes. Uh, well, he at that time was the head of the news division and 60 Minutes. To tell you the truth, I had done about the worst story I've ever done the week that he called. It was a total mess. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I get this call from the head of the news division says, we'd like you to come to New York. And I was like, this is either really good or it's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, it's really strange that I'm calling you in to ask you this when you have had absolutely the worst story, <laughs> it was a story about how colleges were no longer going to use SATs. And in Los Angeles, we are three hours behind New York. Our, the news goes on at 6.30 here, it's 3.30 there. They sent us out to go out to um, Harvey Mudd at, at noon. So we didn't even get there until 1.30. And we had to you know, interview people and write it up and phone it in and all of that. And it was just so compressed that it, this was not just once over lightly. This was just lightly. Mm. <laughs> the story was just, you know, gee, some schools aren't using SATs anymore. Back to you. So that was the story. And he said, it's, it's, a, it's really something I'm calling to, add, to tell you this after you've had like the worst story uh, of the year on, on the evening news, but we're calling to ask if you would like to come to 60 Minutes. And before he even got the words out of his mouth, I was like, yes. <laughs> yes. Wow. Of course. Wow. And by this time, your kids were out of Harvard Westlake, right? They were yes. in college they by that were, point? Uh, Leslie was still in college. Uh, Billy William had graduated two years before. And now that you're there, obviously you're working on these amazing stories, incredibly uh, professionally fulfilled despite missing LA, I'm sure, quite a bit. How do you think about yourself now kind of as a, as a mentor? Now that you're, you've been in this career for so long about kind of the example you set for others, for other correspondents, for, for other journalists around the country, kind of how do you view your role as a source of wisdom now for others? You're no longer the new, the new kid at 60 Minutes. Last year, before the pandemic, there's a program uh, in the news division called the Wisdom Series, and the producers of the Wisdom Series came to ask me if I would be this topic of a Wisdom Series. It basically is that you sit and answer questions from the assembled writers, producers, correspondents, whatever. And I remember saying to them, what? What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? Me? And, and they were like, oh, please. Stop with this false modesty. I said, it's really not false modesty, but she's like, if you can't tell people about your journey and how to do this, then who the heck can? <laughs> you know, you've been doing this forever. You must have something you can impart. And then you know what I realize it's it's true. I have been doing this a very, very long time, and I love it. It's never dull, ever. For me, uh, it's always challenging, sometimes too challenging. But I really enjoy telling young people. I, I like finding 
that young person who has that spark that I find many young people want to come to this because of, of the perceived glamour. You know, you're on camera, the lights are on you, your name is up on the screen, it's you, but not realizing all of the hard work that goes into it. If being on camera for 10 seconds in a story on the evening news is really going to rock your boat and, you know, knock yourself out, but it's really hard work. And if you're not motivated by the hard work, if you're not motivated by getting the story so you can tell for me, it's, it is history. It's the first pass at history. I'm telling America's story to us in this democracy where we decide where we're going to go, how we're going to go, which direction. Do we want this? Do we want that? We can't make those decisions without real, honest information. And I see it as my job to provide that information so we, the American people, can decide What's the best path for us? Where do we want to go? And how do we want to get there? I, I sort of see myself as still a history major. And a curious one, right? You're probably that spark that you're looking for is a curiosity that drives that hard work. I think so. I think so. Like your fifth grade teacher. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Full circle. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go, Bill, there are a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast. And they relate to Los Angeles, where I know you, maybe in a few years, you'll come back. Who knows? They relate to film, food, and climate, which is something Los Angeles is known for. So first, what is Bill Whitaker's favorite movie? You know, when everything locked down and we were stuck at home and we started watching movies, I realized that I like like the Bourne movies. Mm. And um, Bond movies, I, I think mm. it's kind of the adventure and the foreign capitals and the, the speed, the cars. I mean, I, I've, I've found that I really like those movies. And my, my wife is kind of shocked that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of like, oh, yeah, I, I can watch Born again. I can, I can watch that one again. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. My dad's the same way. He, the, anytime the Born Identity movie is on, <laughs> can't stop watching it. Or The Fugitive, you know, that's another. Uh-huh. Billy got me into, um, what's the, Den, 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 Tom Cruise ones. Um, Mission Impossible? Mission Impossible. He, he said, well, if you like Bourne, you might like these. So he's broadening my horizons. <laughs> got it. Good. Secondly, what's your favorite meal in LA? When you guys come back, you're visiting there, you're on assignment, you're there to visit. Is there a restaurant you just absolutely love? Or is there, or maybe a meal that you guys like to make at home as a family in LA that all right this is very telling i think i have to go to poquito mas and and get mexican food there is no people here in new york will probably slap me in the face but i have i have not found good mexican food here in in new york i had a cab driver the other day said oh and he recommended a couple of places that i have not yet tried so i can't say there's no good mexican food here but the mexican food that i have found watery not that tasty. So whenever I go back to LA, I just have to have a fix of good Mexican food. Totally agree, by the way. That's that's my favorite as well. Third, what is your favorite place in LA? Is there a part of town or a street or an area that you sort of miss when you think about LA and maybe our good weather? I used to live up near Runyon Canyon. And we lived there so long that in the beginning, 
I could actually hike Runyon Canyon and kind of be there by myself. And I'm talking now 30 years ago. It's so long. And as the decades went by, I think somebody must have written an article in a magazine or something about Runyon Canyon being so close to Hollywood. All of a sudden it became like Fifth Avenue. There are so many people there. But I still liked to do, I could make a loop from from the house, go down one side and climb up the other and walk back. It was about a six-mile loop. And I would do that three times a week. And that was my exercise. I used to love that. The thing that Terry and I sort of say, we need to go back to, to go to the Hollywood Bowl. It's a wonderful thing to do on a summer evening in Los Angeles. Go to the bowl, uh, have your glass of wine, listen to great music, either jazz or classical or whatever. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful experience. Last question. You are the parent of a son and a daughter who both went to Harvard Westlake, who you mentioned your daughter's in Berlin now and your son's in New York, both in the tech industry doing very well, which is great to hear. I have a two-year-old daughter and I actually have another on the way. This is actually the first time I've Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I have another daughter on the way. So my last question to every guest is, what's your best parenting advice, either that's been given to you or that you recall from your parents or um, that you have in thinking about raising your own kids? Oh, my gosh. Be married to a great mother. Terry was a fantastic mother. My job is very demanding of my time. And uh, she was able to hold everything together while I'm, as I said, see ya, honey. <laughs> I'll be back in a, you know, a week or whatever. That's um, number one. But number two, I just enjoyed the living daylights out of those kids. I just enjoyed them. Every, I didn't have a bad age. Uh, Leslie's going to um, jump down my back for this, but she, in 11th grade, you know, it's very difficult. 11th grade is very difficult. She just became a, I don't have time for this. She'd go in a room. She'd close the door. She'd come out maybe to eat, you know, whatever. She, she was like, she just did not have time for her parents when she was in 11th grade. And somehow in about a year, it was just a year, she came out on the other side and she was like, hi, dad. He's like, wait, who? Who are you? <laughs> who is this? Your name is what? <laughs> you know, even that, you know, you just know they're going through a phase. You just know that there's, you know, their hormones racing and the school is hard and they've got dreams and things that are pushing them and pulling them and all. So you, you know what's going on. So you, you have to be the adult and figure out a way to help them maneuver through that. But I just enjoyed the heck out of them and still do. Good advice as well. Well, Bill Whitaker, thank you so much for joining me. You do this for a living. And and so I think, thank you for putting up with my a very novice oh, <laughs> work. You know, a, you're, you're terrific and this was good. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, Bill, for joining the supporting cast. Thank you. 